Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from HBO and HBO Max Chief Content Officer Casey Bloys about his programming strategy and what we can expect to see from the US premium cable net and its streamer in 2021. And writer Russell T Davies and Red Production Company founder Nicola Schindler on their latest collaboration, It's a Sin, for the UK's Channel 4 and HBO Max. Casey Bloys is Chief Content Officer for HBO and HBO Max. He became president of the US Premium Cablenet's programming in May 2016 and in August this year assumed oversight of original content for WarnerMedia's new streaming service, responsible for drama series, documentaries, unscripted programming and specials across HBO Max. As part of Content London On Demand, the virtual version of our annual international TV conference taking place online this month and into December, he spoke with Stephen Armstrong about HBO and HBO Max's programming strategies, what we can expect to see from them in 2021, and what he thinks the future holds for the global TV business. Casey, thanks so much for coming along. So it's a new role for you. It's been an interesting year. Everything's changing, but everything stays the same. Tell us a bit about you know what you're up to, perhaps a little bit about HBO Max for those who are, who are just arriving. So um, to tell you about what I'm doing, I'll, I'll tell you about HBO Max and, and, and our goal and what we're trying to do. You know, coming from HBO, you, you, you know HBO, you know the kinds of shows that we do, and that programming strategy does not change. And in fact, HBO lives as a core brand within the HBO Max service. And the idea with HBO Max is to broaden out the offering to make it as attractive to as many consumers as possible. And in order to do that, if you think about what HBO is known for, you know, think about what we don't typically offer on HBO. So to broaden out for Max, that would include things like offering reality programming, uh, adult animation, uh, acquired content. One of the things that we want to do at Max is really lean into our advantages as as a company, Warner Media. That includes not only the HBO brand, but DC is a really uh, important brand for us. We've got expertise in young adult storytelling with shows like Gossip Girl, Pretty Little Liars, things like that. And so the idea is when you take it all together, when you take HBO and you take this expanded offering for HBO Max, the whole thing together is a really really attractive proposition for consumers. And you're the guy across the whole thing, essentially. You're you're. Yes. Yes. The- pro- programming for both HBO and HBO Max. And thinking about this year, 2020, it's been a very complicated year for everyone in broadcasting. Maybe almost just to get this out of the way, how, how your very early stages, you're launching around in other places, you're, you're adapting to the new environment. How has this year been for you in terms of production, but also in terms of thinking about where audiences are and where you want to head? Well, I would say, I mean, 2020 has been a challenging year for, for a lot of reasons. Um, obviously, um, COVID has been something that has affected everybody around the world. Um, And from a business sense, those of us who rely on crowds of people to do our jobs in terms of, you know, producing shows. So that has been a real challenge. But, uh, you know, one thing I will tell you, um, by the end of the year, we will be back up to shooting uh, between HBO and Max equal to the level we were at in March before shutdown, if not a little bit above. So um, I was very happy about that. I will say a big, big shout out to our production departments at HBO, Max, and Warner 
others, uh, and the entire industry, I will say, everybody really came together to try to figure out how to go back safely. Uh, it requires a lot of patience, but I think the will to get something done and to do it safely, we're, we're back up to pre, pre-March, uh, pre-COVID, uh, you know, when the pandemic had pre, pre-level. So I'm very impressed with everybody involved trying to get these shows back up and running. And do you think that what we've had is something that we've had to deal with right here and right now, and that's just an issue which and things will return to normal? Or do you expect the audiences will want different things? They'll have been exposed to a lot more viewing over this period. They'll have had a, a, an enormous number of decisions to make. They have different kinds of quality that maybe now they're going to be looking for uplifting, upbeat stuff, you know, Busby Barkley and the Depression. Do you think that this has changed what you'll be doing? Do you know, I I, um, I remember around, you know, when 9-11 happened, uh, there was a lot of questions about what's the right response, you know, what's the right kind of programming to put out? And I will say I typically, for any kind of huge event like this, that has, you know, seismic changes to culture, I actually kind of look to the artists to, as a guide. They're the ones who are going to have the stories to tell and they're the ones, you know, depending on how they process events and what they think is an interesting uh, interesting take on things or how to look at things. Um, I, I tend to respond to their take. Um, I, I don't think it's particularly helpful for me or our programming teams to say, you know, I think that, you know, given what's happened, people want X, Y, or Z. I, I'm not really sure. We can all guess, but I, I my point is I think artists are probably better uh, arbiters of what's the right uh, way to process things around us. And with, with the variety of commissioning options you have now with HBO and HBO Max, do you have similar artist relationships across the board or do you find that different ways of working with people work? For, I mean, how do you work with artists at the moment across everything? Well, I, that's it's interesting because that's one of, the, one of the points I would make about overseeing both HBO and HBO Max. One of the things that I feel as a culture we've done very well at HBO is foster a place where artists feel taken care of. And that's not just in how we develop shows, but it's in how we produce them, how we cast them, um, how we make deals for them. And I would like that experience for producers or, or artists, how it feels to work at HBO. I would like that to translate to HBO Max. So whether you're working on a reality show or a big budget tentpole drama, that there is a feeling that this is a place where artists are protected and taken seriously and given the resources to tell the kinds of stories that they want to tell. Is that process taking time set up or would you say you're I mean are you are you running now or are you still I it's it's been a couple of months and I would say combining organizations and cultures you know is always going to take time but I would say it's it's up and running and you know we have our teams in place and everybody's I, I would say it's fair to say everybody is feeling really excited and, and good about the the mission at hand and so <clears throat> looking at what you you currently have in this you know expanding world where there's a a lot of competition and, and only increasing. Do you have very clear ideas to how you differentiate yourself from the other streamers, the other platforms, the other broadcasters? Yep. Well, first of all, I would say it's not, a, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. In other words, I don't think it's just one player in the streaming world. I do think there's room for multiple players and obviously we intend to be one of them. But I think our real advantage, if you think about, again, what we were talking about earlier, HBO is this uh, very important brand, a, a core brand for HBO Max. But as a company, Warner Media has so many 
brands to offer. You've got DC, you've got Looney Tunes, you've got Warner Brothers movies, you've got the expertise in young adult storytelling with things like Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars and Riverdale and things like that. And the idea is when you put all that together as a company, that expertise and that range of programming is a really, really compelling offering for uh, consumers. And have you reached the point now where you're starting to commission things which you think are trademark HBO, HBO Max uh, shows that you think indicate your your direction and your vision? Well, what I would say is for HBO, again, you know, what we what what we're doing at HBO, the programming strategy um, doesn't change, um, and and HBO lives as you know one of the brands within the Max platform. But in terms of HBO Max, a couple of shows I would point to. We're doing uh, a Peacemaker series, which is James Gunn is it's a DC franchise, a, a spinoff of the Suicide Squad uh, with John Cena uh, starring. We've got a Green Lantern series that we're working on. We've got a Gotham City PD, which is you know in the Batman universe. So those DC franchises we have greenlit and are working on. We're really excited about. We're shooting Gossip Girl in New York, uh, which I think is a really good example of uh, leaning into that uh, young adult storytelling expertise. So we, we have a, a bunch of shows that are in production and I feel are a good example of what we can do at, at Max that broadens out the, the offering. And, and also, you know, as I said, we're going to have uh, an entire complement of reality programming. So that is competition shows, dating shows, lifestyle. So, again, so, the, so the whole bundle of programming is a really compelling offering for consumers. And do you have your partners in place? Because obviously this is, this is uh, expanding out into all these different formats. There's established partnerships there. Are you looking for anything in particular? Or are you looking for new partners? Or are, you, are there shows that you don't have? Uh, there's, uh, I would say there's, you know, obviously between the relationship at HBO and Warner Brothers and already what we've been doing at Max, obviously, you know, there's people we know, but we're always open to uh, ideas, producers we haven't worked with. I think that's where, you know, a lot of times you find your best ideas. Uh, I think you, you, ha- you do have to be careful as a programmer not to continue to go back again and again to the same people, but open up uh, your world and make sure that you're hearing the freshest ideas whenever you can. And do you ever think to yourself, okay, I need to, I need to look at crime again fresh? Do you ever have sort of things that, you know, this is what we could do with? As a, as a philosophy, uh, I will say I'm always aware of what the slate is, you know, and the teams will look at, you know, we'll look at HBO, we'll look at Max and, you know, we have a pretty good idea going, you know, say two years out of what, what we have lined up and what's coming. And we'll go through and make sure that we're not too bunched up on crime shows, family shows, or, you know, one of the things we try to make sure at both places is that you have a diverse slate. And I mean that, I, I've said this before, but I mean in every sense of the word that it is literally diverse, but it's also diverse in terms of the genres, the storytelling, the tone, um, everything. So I, I do think in order to be a compelling slate, you have to make sure that you're seeing things you haven't seen before, or um, you're doing things in a slightly different way, or looking at something that in a way that no one has seen before. So we try to be as mindful as we can of what our lineup is and what the slate as a whole looks like. But you balance that with sometimes something just comes in really good and exciting. And even if you have, you know, two other things like it, you're going to do it because it's good. But I do think it's important that you're always aware of how all the pieces fit together. And at the moment, you're, you you have a number of territories that you're serving. I believe in the end, the long term idea is to expand that out and to go as far as you can. Will you be looking to work with partners locally as well? Would you, for instance, in due course, look to work with European 
partners outside i think you already have relationships in london let's say and, and, we, yeah i was gonna say we, we have we've had a lot of success with our friends at bbc and sky and channel four um and you know we'll we'll continue to pursue them where they make sense creatively for us and and outside of the u.s you know one of the things i think that's been interesting if you you know the whole idea behind this merger was breaking down the silos between hbo and warner brothers and tbs tnt and that also includes our international efforts you know we, we have had a really, really robust programming effort between HBO and TBS TNT all, all over the globe. You guys you know, may know Anthony Root in, in Europe, and we have HBO Latin America and HBO Asia. And so we probably have 35, 40 series um, that we have done. And one of the things we want to do is have a lot more coordination and make sure all the, that all those programming efforts are talking to one another and understand what every that we understand what everybody's doing so that if there's anything in any territory, I do believe that the best and most important programming that people do in their territories are the ones that are local. Having said that, I do think it's also important that as a service and as a company, we're aware of what everybody's doing across the globe so that if there's something that has cross-border appeal, we're aware of it and we can surface it and make sure we are doing the best job we can for getting that in front of as many people as possible. So I think you'll see a lot more coordination. We have an executive named Jen Kim at Max, who will be um, kind of coordinating all those international programming operations so that there's just a lot more communication as a company so that we can take advantage of everything we're doing. A lot of really great shows around the globe. And so when, when you're thinking heading in 21, you've got your slate really thought through for, for a bit, but I'm sure there's flexibility if something happens. But do, do you, what do you think your opportunities are and what do you think your challenges are? I mean, you know, like the, the challenge in a programming venture, I think, is always, you know, there are so many things that can go wrong getting, you know, getting a show from conception or pitch to final product and making sure that we're doing everything we can to give, you know, artists and producers and everything, all the support they need to do the best show they can. But as anybody who's ever kind of been involved in a creative endeavor, there, there are so many things that can go wrong. So that's just the daily stress of making sure you're doing that and making sure that the collection, I think the biggest challenge is making sure that the collection of shows that you put together and offer breakthrough and are meaningful to consumers. Um, having said that, I do think that the teams that we have in place, you know, the 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 expertise and the experience that they have, I feel really good about it. But that that's kind of the general stress of any programmer is making sure that you're doing the best shows possible and also that you're doing shows that as a collection that your service um, or your platform breaks through. As you say, the UK, you, I, and because I'm UK based, I probably know more about the UK than other places. And it may be that this is atypical, but you have a, a variety of relationships in the UK. In some cases, like with Sky Atlantic, you have a, a channel that will show your programs, and others you have co-production relationships. Is that consistent around the world, or other broadcasters are bringing their shows back in house and stuff like that? I would say it, we've had more experience in the UK, probably you know because there's been a domestic focus. So obviously, the English language there's creatively there's probably more in common with what we're looking for. But for the first time uh, ever in on HBO Linear, we're going to highlight a, uh, a Spanish show that. Uh, HBO uh, Europe has done 30 coins and we're going to air Beartown, which is a Swedish show. So I think that part of what I was saying before about breaking down those barriers is, again, making sure that we are taking advantage of all the really excellent programming we've done uh, across the globe. But I think we'll continue, you know, we, ha we have these relationships in the UK that go back, you know, in some cases, decades of working together and uh, similar taste. And I think that will continue. It less, it, it's limited out 
outside uh, of the UK. You know, we do My Brilliant Friend with Rye in Italy. Not as common, probably more, more likely to be UK-based, or if not, it'll be with our international operations that are already set up. And you were talking about the variety and the diversity stuff. And actually, the other big thing that's been happening this year, and I know that this is something that varies from territory to territory and broadcaster to broadcaster when we talk about diversity, but when we've seen the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer, it's kind of reinforcing that need for change and that need for diversity. Speaking purely about HBO, and I know that you have a much broader range of areas, I think that HBO has been very, uh, has been, well, I mean, I think of Insecure, I think of The Watchmen, I think of Lovecraft Country, I think of all of these play- these shows and which are uh by that. But do you do you feel that you're where you want to be? Do you think that you can, you know, that there's more to be done? How do you feel about that? I, I, there's, there's always more that can be done, but I do think those shows you mentioned, you know, um, just this spring and summer, we had Insecure, I May Destroy You, which we did with um, BBC, Lovecraft Country, we've got Black Lady Sketch Show is shooting now, we've got Between the World and Me, which is a special that we're airing in a couple of weeks. And, and those things ended up on the air this year, but this is from a very deliberate push that we've made since we started in, let's say I started in HBO in this job in 2016. So it was a very conscious effort to broaden out our programming in all in all ways. But I, I, I do think it's important to point out the, the point of diversity is not just, we're not looking to do it just to do it. We're doing it because if you're looking to do premium content and you're looking to reinvent or tell stories that people haven't heard, it's a business imperative. In other words, if you look at Lovecraft Country, the revolutionary thing there was Misha, the creator of the show, kind of took back sci-fi and horror for a diverse audience. So if your job is to look for shows that people haven't seen before or a different way of looking at things, diversity is is really a business imperative. Uh, It happens to be the right thing to do, but when it works together like that, that's the best case scenario. Do you think that the content business overall, that it is supporting the change that we want to see? If you ask anybody, I think it's always, you know, nice when you see um, shows that have diverse leads in front of them behind the camera, but I don't think we're close to capacity for what could be done. And your audience is broad because you have this array, this array of channels and array of output on um, HBO Max. Do you Would you say there's particular audiences, age or different groups, whatever, that you're aiming most strongly at? Well, I, again, I would go back to um, HBO. And if you're broadening out the HBO audience, if that's the goal of Max, you're going to go younger and to some extent more female. If you think about HBO, what you want to do in a, you know, a four quadrant map is have something for everybody with Max. And so generally speaking, I would say younger, female, YA, which is not an area that we've typically been in. And the DC, the, you know, Watchmen was based on a graphic novel, obviously, but like DC Fair is not something that we would have typically done on HBO. So that that pushes the audience out broader, I would say. And what sort of stuff are you making now that you're really excited by? Are there any shows that you've got that you kind of can't wait for the audience to see? Well, I'm, I, I will say, you know, um, we, we do have Flight Attendant, which, you know, depending on when this airs, uh, will will have just, God, I was going to say just taken off, but I don't I don't mean that as a, <laughs> I really don't mean that as a joke. I wasn't trying to be funny, but we'll have just aired uh, in the US on Max. And that's a really fun, it, it stars Kelly Cuoco in, is the lead. It's a really fun, very pulpy kind of murder mystery that I think is great. I think it's a really great example of what we can do on Max. First of all, I think Kelly Cuoco is a big star and she's fantastic in this role. It's also a really fun tone. It's very stylish. It's kind of noir and pulpy. It's a, you know, it's a tough thing to get that tone right. And the producers here have done a really, really good job. And again, I can't say enough about how good Kaylee is in it. Greg Berlanti 
Santi is one of the executive producers who we obviously do a lot of business with at Warner Media. So we're really proud of the show. And I just think it's a it's a really fun and well done and stylish show. As I said, we just started shooting Gossip Girl, which I think is going to be a really good title for Max in terms of what we can do in broadening out the HBO audience. So I'm excited about those two. Uh, one of the nice things about this job for me personally is I've never we've done documentaries and doc series at HBO for a long time, but working on reality shows, you know, and in that space, which I like as a consumer, you know, we'll watch a lot of reality shows as a family. So getting that we have a lot of really fun and interesting uh, reality programming plans. So that's been fun for me. So there's a there's a lot of great stuff coming up. So when you're putting shows together for the next few years, are you thinking about the way the drama business is changing and the way what's available to the audiences are changing? I mean, how do you see the next two, three years in terms of the, your industry? I guess the way I would look at it for us between HBO and HBO Max, again, you, you have some idea of what HBO programs look like. And I think in the drama space for Max, what you're going to see us doing is in addition to a show like Flight Attendant that feels a bit broader, we're going to lean into the DC franchise, as I you know mentioned a couple of those shows, Peacemaker, Green Lantern. We're also going to uh, lean into the young adult space. And I think that those patterns or you know, you're going to see that going forward. That's going to inform what we're doing. So those, I would say those three programming genres, the female-led limited series, YA and DC would be the focus for the Max drama slate. Do you take the view that um, there is space for everyone? I know that um, over at FX, uh, we're getting this constant annual count of how many show, new shows there are, and we, we, we've reached peak TV many, many times over. Does that ever concern you? Do you think that there is room for everybody? I mean, if you're thinking about it uh, from an industry point of view, there there is a lot of programming, and it does strain industry resources in terms of there's only so many writers, there's only so many directors, there's only so many actors. However, I think it is fair to be aware of that and work within those constraints, but also not get too worried about what anybody else is doing and only focus on, you know, our shows and our slate and making them the best they can be. And so let's say kick it a lot forward five years down the line. How would you like HBO Max to look? I would say two ways. One, for producers, for your audience, for producers, talent, anybody who's looking to work at either place, that working at HBO Max feels like... Like uh, working at HBO in that we give producers for whatever genre of show they're doing the resources and the support they need to make the best show they can they can do for a consumer. My hope is that HBO Max is a place that they can come in and find something for everybody, something that feels, um, you know, you've got big, sophisticated HBO dramas, but also I, I think they can live alongside other genres of programming as they have for many years, you know, within a cable environment. But I think that allows you to do you know shows that feel distinct in in all different kinds of genres reality or uh, YA or or tentpole dramas so the hope is that the whole offering feels like a place you can come in and spend a lot of time and find shows that are of a quality you're not going to find somewhere else that feel distinct in some way um, and and I do think that the collection of brands and the collection of storytelling expertise within Warner media is our big advantage if you look at the way that TV's been changing since 2016, uh, you know, the, the arrival of the SWORDs, a lot of people have been basically aping the HBO model, which is find talent, do a particular length run. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But for me, there is still something extremely distinctive about what you do. I can tell that, that I'm not watching an HBO show when I'm not. What is that? What's the relationship that you manage to have with talent that perhaps doesn't seem to develop elsewhere? Or, or what do you allow people, what do 
you looking for? Why is an HBO show obviously an HBO show, even amongst all this TV? Well, again, I, I, I think it's a lot of things. That's why I say it's not just as, as talented as I think our programming teams are um, at picking the shows and working with talent. That's a big part of it. But it is also across the board how we deal with talent. It is how we make their deals. It is how we handle the publicity. It is how we handle marketing. Um, so that the entire experience from pitching to developing to producing to marketing to publicity all across the board feels that talent is something that we respect and that we put first and that we pay for and that we are proud of as a company. And I know that seems like a very uh, general answer, but it's those little moves within each step of that process that culturally um, we have always tried to give everybody the best experience. And my job is to make people working at HBO Max feel the same way. Again, for whatever kind of show they're coming in to do, whether it's a, a limited series or a reality competition show, that in every department that comes in contact with the show, everybody is thinking, how do we make the talent feel like they're number one? And how do we elevate the show above all others? So it, it's little decisions along the way. And what you've also, I think, been notably good at recently has been someone will come to you with very little experience, perhaps, looking at girls, insecure. And in many cases, those might be the people who weren't noticed because they've got a great idea for a script, but everybody has got a great idea for a script. And you've been able to mentor with them, give them, help, help them with the right people. For a start, will that continue across Max? I, I guess there's some output that you probably won't do quite that because you already have established right. properties. Is that something that you would develop in reality, develop it, or even with your established properties like DC, would you see that as being a possibility? I mean, I think it, it, as, you, as you said, it probably makes more sense in scripted rather than some of the unscripted areas. But I, I, I think to my earlier point about like uh, looking at a slate overall and making sure that you've got diversity, that's also that point of view, you know, interesting points of view. Looking for that is sometimes the thing that allows you to take a chance on someone that maybe doesn't have the experience, but you think, I've never heard someone kind of look at being single in LA or look at being single in New York or, or whatever it is. Looking for that distinct voice, I think, is what draws you to new talent. And I think having a culture where you're encouraged to try something new and try something that maybe isn't uh, tested in some way, you know, that striving for something different and something distinct that I think can be across the board, HBO and Max, always looking for something that feels different, feels distinct, haven't seen anywhere else. I think that has to continue being part of what we do. And my example of this is another HBO one, but I'm, this, this is a question for across all of the all of the output that, that you're working on. I remember going to the set of Game of Thrones and to my eternal shame, this is before the first episode of being shown. And I was wandering around that set and I was thinking, well, look, this is the company that put out Sopranos and The Wire. This is going to be an absolute bomb. This show has no chance whatsoever. I'll stake my reputation. <laughs> but when you you moved into that genre and you, and you made it work, are there genres that you think that you're not in and that you would like to be that you're um, interested in developing into? No, you know, none that I would necessarily call out today. But another example that I would say was Euphoria. When you try something that doesn't feel, and I put this in quotes, HBO, that's where I think it's always interesting where you can push out what an HBO show might be. And the idea of, you know, your protagonist being a drug addict in high school doesn't necessarily feel like maybe historically what an HBO show is. But I think as a programmer, it's important that you're always testing that brand flexibility, you know, like what what can it be? And I think Game of Thrones is obviously a really good example of that. On paper, maybe it doesn't feel like 
you know, what an HBO show was, but I think that has to always evolve. Um, and I think that that's the case for kind of any, any programming platform. You don't want to keep doing the same thing. Um, you want to make sure that you're pushing yourself and pushing the company. And, and uh, that's where hopefully you discover new voices, interesting shows that people come to expect, the consumers come to expect uh, from you. I think in the past, you, you know, people have worked really well together as part of the family of the organizations that you represent. Would you see that if one of your drama producers came to you and said, listen, I've got a great idea for a reality show, you could see yeah. that cross-working? Oh, for, uh, uh, Issa, speaking of Insecure, Issa is working on what I think is a really cool reality show. I don't know if it's been announced, so I don't want to, I don't want to say the details, but that, that happens all the time. And, and it's one of the great advantages of being in uh, business with really talented people that they usually don't just want to do one thing that we'll discover a lot of our, you know, directors or writers that way they worked on this show and you put them on another show. And that's another reason why back to the point about diversity, why diversity is important because, you know, you discover a lot of great talent, you know, Issa brought us black lady sketch show. I don't know. That's a show we would have uh, had our eye on had she not said, you know, who we trust said, Hey, this is a show you should check out. So that's, that's one of the, the great advantages of working with really talented people is they tend to work with other really talented people. And your job is to, uh, our job is to uh, be aware of that and be open to that. So everything's been changing for you over the last couple of years, but it has been changing for the industry as well. Where do you see us in five years time? Well, let's say two to five. What do you think the challenges facing in particular the drama business are? And what do you think the opportunities are? The drama business, well, I, you know, you, you, you do call out, you know, an important thing for all of us to think about is there are, there are so many shows out there and available that it does strain the available talent, you know, um, studio space, things like, you know, the practicalities of, of actually putting a show together. I think consumer attention, you know, there's just, there's so much to watch um, that when your favorite show goes off, find another, you find another favorite show. So, I mean, I, the challenge is what it's always been, which is putting out shows that are so compelling people, you know, have to see the next one. You know, I know, I know we've been talking about it as an industry, you know, when is peak TV, you know, I don't know. And I don't know what happens if you continue at this pace, but, you know, even in this environment or when it was a bit more sane, the, the challenge is always going to be the same, which is how do you break through, you know? Um, and that's where we'll continue to go back to some of the things we talked about, which is what's interesting, what's not out there, what are advantages, you know, in things like DC. Um, so I think in any environment, you have to go back to your advantages and we'll continue to do that. But as an industry, I, I do think that obviously this streaming will is becoming and will be the norm and what that looks like for broadcast networks and basic cable networks is I'm sure other people are going to be talking about this at the conference, what that looks like for their future. I think that's probably challenging. That's why I, I feel like like what we're setting up at HBO Max puts us as a company in a good position for the future. So I feel good about that. And this is a slightly uh, uh, personal question, but the for me, not for you. Um, the yeah. uh, So I've looked at you know Lord of the Rings, a book I grew up with as a teenager, going to a film and then being uh, spit into a TV show. Looked at Fargo, a film I went on a very good date with, becoming a TV show. You've got things like Casablanca. You've got these great movie properties. Is anything off limits? Or do you think that you can expand all of those properties into different areas? Uh, uh, is anything off limits? I, again, I, I would go back to um, if an artist who we, you know, loved and respected said, oh, my God, I have the best take on, you know, and name the property. That That's what's that's what's uh, most 
exciting to me is forgetting about what what I would like. It's what a what a producer, what a writer wants to you know live with. Because again, this is the thing they're going to live with for the next five six years. So it has to be something they're really really excited about. So that's what I respond to typically, and that's what our teams is looking for the passion from a writer. Um, so if that is a property and we have the property, you know, I, I think that we're open and you know we have a history at HBO and Warner Brothers has a history of you know really great IP and um, Game of Thrones obviously came from books Um, so it's certainly been done successfully and I think will continue to be so I I don't see any limits but again uh, let's not make the headline here that Casablanca is being (laughs) developed HBO and HBO Max Chief Content Officer Casey Bloys You can watch the full video version of that interview right now on c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber as part of Content London On Demand. Among the other speakers last week were writer Russell T Davies and Red Production Company founder Nicola Schindler, discussing their latest collaboration for the UK's Channel 4 and HBO Max. It's a Sin is a five-part drama charting the joys and heartbreaks of a group of young gay men beginning a new life in London at the start of the 1980s with the shadow of AIDS looming over them. Davies and Schindler spoke to Michael Picard about how the series came about, its place within their long-running partnership and what audiences can expect to see from the series. I was going to say it's the new show from Russell T Davies, but really it's the new show in your long partnership working together. Can you just maybe tell us a bit about what happens? Does Russell call you, Nicola, with a, an idea for a new show? Do you call him and say, what are you working on? How do we get to It's a Sin, I guess, as the latest in your partnership? Uh, Russell said to me a long time ago that he was thinking about this subject matter, thinking about writing about boys in London in the 80s. It was something that had been going around for a long time. And it was it was many years wasn't it really before you actually sat down and wrote it but we talked about it and I knew the vague shape of it but um when Russell said he was ready to write it then I was ready to make it and fell it because I just think I knew that it was going to be extraordinary yeah and I would go to no one else because I just think Nicola's the best I don't think she is the best um and this is in our 10th show together yeah that's ridiculous isn't it um someone stop us but um obviously you know it's it's you need a safe place in which to work uh, and an imaginative place in which to work in which you'd be pushed and yeah I've been I mean really I'm the same age as the lead characters in this. I, in, it, this starts in 1981 in episode one, and 18-year-old characters go to the big city and start living their lives. And I was 18 in 1981. So when you ask how long have you been thinking of it, it's, it's how long I've been living it, really, since I was 18. So um, I was always going to write this and delighted to finally get, get to make it. I'm so pleased. And so tell us a bit more about the story then and, and some of the characters uh, we made. You, you mentioned as uh, it starts off with uh, these three lads all in various different family dynamics coming to London and, and meeting and, and living their life together. Tell us a bit yeah. of, about the show. It's 18-year-olds going to the city. They end up in a flat of five. There's four lads and their best friend, Jill. Um, all the boys are gay. They call their flat the Pink Palace. Because it's important to find out that this is, this is a story about life being lived and about friendship. It's the story of AIDS during the 1980s, but we're all very keen. And even the AIDS organisations and HIV organisations that I've worked with are very keen to get across the life of the 1980s, the being 18 in that decade and having fun. So we see actually 10 years past. It's five episodes. We go from 1981 to 1991, during which time the shadow of this uh, virus gets closer and closer until it's no longer a shadow, until it's part of their lives. But what you see, as well as great sadness and and terror and prejudice sometimes is also, as I said, life being lived, the joy of being that age, the triumph of the human spirit, the will to survive, the laughter you have with your friends, the great, great times when you go through those great highs and terrible lows together. It's the story of a bunch of friends in the end, and I hope people will come to it and love it for that. 
Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's both of those, isn't it? It's, it's a great coming of age story. These guys finding themselves and their sexualities and coming together to explore London in the 80s. But then, like you say, from the very first episode, really, it starts off as, a, I think, a rumour and a newspaper article about this disease that's um, affecting lots of people in America and it's coming over to the UK. And how did you decide to approach or bring these two elements of the story together? Well, to show to show it being experienced during a life being lived instead of uh, the story stopping and halting, you show that actually this is how it was in the 80s. A terrible uh, disease came along, terrible things happened, but we didn't actually all sit around crying night and day. We had that spirit that's the world to survive, the world to fight the virus as well. Also, that leaping head, the, the very slow awareness of a virus coming. We've got to be aware that this was um, you know, a pre-internet age. It is one of the one of my favourite things in this drama is that people go back to Scotland and disappear. If, if they were ex-directory, um, with no mobile phones, no internet, people literally disappear. You forget in the old days how you had to have someone's landline telephone number and that was the only means of communication that or a letter so um, it's a very different world in which information and information about a virus in this case is spread very slowly which allows the virus to march onwards so, so you're experiencing that with some great characters and some great cast it's a very young cast it's a very new cast we've got Ollie Alexander who's quite a star for, as a, for a young man but um, a lot of newcomers as well backed up by a very very brilliant and experienced cast in the first episode we have Neil Patrick Harris in a major role who's amazing Keely Horse is in it Stephen Fry is in it uh, Tracy Ann Oberman's in it so great stars bringing their A-game to it to back up these younger characters it's, it's thrilling to watch Nicola what's um, what's the development process like when talking about stories with Russell does he give you some scripts or are you kind of talking about it from quite a long time I guess in this case it all happens inside the magic of Russell's head <laughs> so there's no such thing as a storyline or a document that's telling you what's coming up but Russell knows what's coming up. So, and also Russell's so production savvy that he knows what we need to know in advance as well. So even though you don't have those documents, you're told what you need to prepare for. So, uh, it, no, I get the scripts and I experience the story as as it comes out of Russell. And that's brilliant because then you, you're waiting and you're waiting and then, then you have the same experience as an audience when you read those scripts for the first time. And Russell does brilliant things with structuring his scripts as well. So you're literally on the edge of your seat as if you were watching something while reading. So it just makes it more exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think structural-wise as well, what Russell was so adamant with it from the beginning and and it makes sense even though it's not modern television in some ways I don't mean modern television it's not what television's been is that you have to get to know these boys and you have to see the joy and you have to have fun and you have to understand what they're living for in order to reach the emotional stage that you need to get to with them. What was um, I guess the pitch meeting like how did you kind of bring Channel 4 involved and can you tell us about some of the partners that you've been working with? Yeah well we we, um, in terms of Channel 4 they were great from when Ian took over at Channel 4 he was really keen to do this and um, Lee Mason, who is our exec at Channel 4, had pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And then Caroline Hollett took over drama and everyone has been very enthusiastic all the way along. So we've had masses of support there. And then we've also been supported by all three media who came on board really early, really wanted to work on a Russell project um, and had, had, you know introduced us to HBO Max, to Jennifer Kim there. And that very quickly, she came on board as well. So it's been a really good, tight-knit team who all want to make the same programme, which you really need to get. And, and they leave you alone, Russell, to, to do your work, do they? Or uh, do you find it a very collaborative... Uh, process when you're writing? Oh, I've got to say, I mean, bless my, I have enormous freedom. I mean, you get notes, but notes are good. You should have notes. And uh, sometimes the notes could be odd. Sometimes HBO Max didn't know what a kitty was. Put money in the kitty. What's that? <laughs> so, but notes like that are fine. And good notes, really, really notes will push you. And um, But as Nicola said, once you get that co-production right from the start, from day one, once you're all setting out to make the same programme with the same wish and the same ambition, then that really is an easy, is, is an easy journey. I think we've all been involved in shows where that 
that hasn't been the case. And that's a disaster from day one. And on this, it's been beautifully smooth. And as Nicholas said, very much championed by Lee Mason at Channel 4. You need a champion. You need the people to stand up and say, I love this. And I think we're lucky in drama. I think, I think drama is staffed by people who love the stuff that they do. That's why they all work so hard. So, you know, huge thanks to him. And, and I mean, just looking back on some of your previous work, I mean, where do you think uh, It's a Sin kind of sits in, in the canon of your work? You've done political drama in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s. You've done, obviously, Queer as Folk in the 90s, years and years. Takes us beyond where we are now. How do you see It's a Sin kind of uh, fitting in, into that back catalogue you have? I know. I'll, I'll have to do gay men who are Stone Age men or astronauts next. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm very proud of working with Red, having done Queer as Folk 21 years ago. Then I did Cucumber, and now I've done It's a Sin, which is you think, the lives of gay men in the city, urban lives of gay men, and which is which is who I am. And, and it's a story I'm endlessly fascinated by. I'm endlessly fascinated now in the lockdown by you know, some, some great and some awful stories emerging of, of life in the lockdown. And my focus is always on those gay men. Um, so I'm proud. I'm, I mean, how many writers can sit there and say, you've had a chance to build a body of work like that? I'm immensely proud. And that is the middle. I'm eternally grateful. Mm. I'm very lucky to have those stories. But we talked about um, It's a Sin being not exactly a prequel to Queer as Folk, but it is in that same world because mm. it's about groups of friends coming together and they become family because of the lifestyle that they're living. And it, but in those in the early 80s years, it was affected yep. by HIV and AIDS. In the late 90s, which is when we did Queer as Folk, there was different things to think about. But they mm. are the same world. Cumber is as well. Cucumbers once you've left that world. <laughs> well, I think I think in a way they're all age dramas, actually. I think Queer as Folk is 1999, which is deliberately turning its back on that drama and saying we will not be defined by a virus. Yeah. It's, it's a very AIDS-based piece of work. Cucumber is actually exploring a middle-aged reaction to being told sex kills you in the 80s. And now here we are in the 80s with It's a Sin. So I like that. I think it's a, I think it's a genuinely consistent body of work. Is, is there a reason, you, you sort of spoke about, obviously you've been living with this story for a, a few years now. Is there a reason why now is the, the time that you've decided to write it? Could you have written it 20 years ago, maybe when the 80s were fresher in our minds? Or, or have, you, have you taken the time to kind of be able to look back at, on what was going on then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I did spend a lot of my life looking away from it because imagine, you know, being 18 in 1981 and you're told that sex kills you. It's, it's I think, about my life. As human beings do, even in a virus now, we all spend our lives looking forward, planning what we're going to do next. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's, it's it's very hard for that. And obviously I've lost people who died. And um, a lot of this drama is based every every strange thing you see in this drama is based on it is true there's, there's I've, almost, I've had to invent nothing there's in, in episode two there's a question there's a hospital medical questionnaire that asks people with the virus have you had sex with animals that's a real thing that's a fact that actually happened so you know I could have actually written a hundred episodes yeah I, mean, I just have to ask you as well about the soundtrack I guess anyone who's familiar with 80s music will, will love the soundtrack is that your hand in that do you get to do you write to the music or do you have those in your head when you're writing or is that a later some of them, some of them are very specific some of them actually write with that song so it, so it fits that song and some of them are our great director Peter Hall who brought his own taste to it with all those end title sequences are his and you know obviously like all television makers I can't wait for the day those lovely record companies reduce their prices so we can put even more music in but don't hold your breath so there's <laughs> as much music as we could possibly afford let's put it that way uh, Nicola just I mean tell us a bit about uh, you know the production what were some of the challenges you had filming I guess that you filmed in Manchester I believe so what was what were some of the challenges you had making the show and recreating <laughs> 80s London in 2019 Manchester is a challenge but but we had really talented designer uh, Luana Hansen who you know completely changed total street 
shoots. We had a, uh, our producer, Phil Collinson, is brilliant with picturing CGI and working out what we can do on camera and what we need CGI for. So we had a whole team building that London. And we wanted to make sure we had scale as well, which sometimes you can miss if you're not actually in the real place. So we had to, all those considerations. We had to make sure that we were casting for London as opposed to Manchester, which sometimes it's easy not to do when you're going very fast. But um, there were no uh, there were no huge challenges other than that. We had the most fantastic young cast. Because I think, it, we were, I was worried at times that when there were so many inexperienced people in very key scenes, it can go wrong and it can take a long time to get the right performances. They were brilliant. They knew what they were doing. They knew their characters so well. And they worked so well together. The chemistry between them is just fantastic. And you can see it on screen. So I think that just propelled the shoot really quite easily in terms of what we were getting on camera. Can you tell us how you, how you found the leads and, and what were you looking well, for in those characters? We've got a brilliant casting director we were with called Andy Pryor. And he literally found every single person who fitted those characters. He, he understands Russell's writing really well. So he puts people in front of you who have an essence of the right character. And then with some parts, we were spoiled for choice. With others, it was obvious very early on who it should be. But I think not just those leads as well. I think he's done an incredible job with the friends who come in and out um, of the of that little bubble. That they also feel really tied and real. And, and it's, it's his skill, really, that I think put that together. Before we see episode one, what can you just tell us about the series and what viewers can expect? Oh, well, um, please come and watch it. <laughs> it um, I think it makes, actually it makes a very good box set because uh, it is life being lived um, and it will be released that way in this country. Um, it's I think you can come and share the joy of their lives, actually. I mean, there is tragedy in this show. It gets very sad. It gets very dark. But that's not the keynote because that's not the keynote of people who have HIV or who have AIDS and the activists who fought for it. Um, these are not miserable people. These are people who know how much life matters and how vital it is and how important it is to have that good laugh. And some of these, these people are escaping their families and building their own families out of friends. That's always my favourite story, the invented families that you build around you as an adult. So I think my intention was to create people who, when some of them die, you miss them. That's how much you should love them because you miss them in the way that we miss those who have died from this disease. And I think that's that's a loving thing to do. I hope that people approach it with an open heart and love these people. Russell T Davies and Nicola Schindler talking with Michael Picard about It's a Sin for Channel 4 and HBO Max and distributed by All3 Media International. You can read more about the series on our Drama Quarterly website, but that's all for this episode. There'll be more from Content London On Demand in the podcast tomorrow. Visit C21 for more information in the meantime, where you can also stay up to date with all the latest news from the international TV industry. And don't forget to follow us on mobile and social media as well. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.